Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. As this weekend, August 15th, marks the anniversary of the partition of India in 1947, it's a good time to look back at one of the most tumultuous and violent events of the 20th century. So this week, we were joined by Kavita Puri, author of Partition Voices, Untold British Stories. And she spoke to the BBC's South Asian correspondent, Regini Vadinathan, about the personal testimonies and accounts she has collected from people who lived through partition and subsequently went on to become British citizens. It's a really fascinating conversation. And if you do enjoy it, there's a link in the podcast description where you can find out more about Kavita's book. Now to the episode. Hi, I'm Regini Vaidyanathan, and I'm joined by Kavita Puri. Welcome, Kavita. This book is a great read, first of all, and it comes at a, a time in August, this time of year, when people are talking about partition because it's the anniversary month. First of all, just tell us why you decided to write this book. Well, it's very simple, really. I decided to write the book because it had never been written. And partition was this big thing in in my family, And it sounds kind of strange to say it was always there, but it was not something I could broach, really. Every time I tried to talk to my dad about it, he would just shut it down. And I I kind of talked to friends of mine who were of British South Asian heritage, and, and they said something similar. And so as a journalist with the 70th anniversary approaching, I thought, you know, I wonder how many families are out there who have that kind of experience. And I suppose once we started looking for these stories, we realised they were absolutely everywhere in Britain. And they, you know, they, they were literally all around us. And so I felt it was really important to document these stories, as I said, not just because it hadn't been done, but I thought it was important for the historical record. And I think that people think that partition is something that happened, you know, really far away on the Indian subcontinent. But it is very present in the people that came to Britain in the 50s and 60s. And that legacy really lives on in the generations, the subsequent generations that make up contemporary Britain. And I suppose finally, really, if I, if we hadn't recorded those stories, I was afraid that that generation would die out. And and we would just never know. We would never have heard their stories of of partition. And of course, just to remind our listeners about what partition was, it was effectively the end of British rule in India, the creation of two separate countries, Pakistan and India. And of course, the consequence of that was that millions of people 
were displaced. And this happened in 1947, as you say, uh, more than 70 years ago now. I mean, how would you tell today's generation who don't know what partition was and the significance of it, why this really matters today? Well, if you're talking about Britain and why you're telling British people and British South Asians it matters, it's important because it's British history. And it's really surprising how few the younger generation even know that, you know, empire, uh, the British were in India. And so the starting base is very low. It's not taught in in British schools. But it, it matters because if you don't understand empire, and you don't understand how empire ended, And the fact that because of partition, a lot of the groups that came in the 1950s and 1960s were from areas that were deeply affected by partition. You don't understand why migration happened by South Asians to Britain. And if you look at the latest census, there are 3 million South Asians in Britain. Another census is taking place next year. There will be, you know, many more than 3 million. And I think people have to understand, British South Asians have to understand why they are in this country as a legacy of empire. But British people need to understand why they are here too. And it is because of that link. And Britain and South Asia have a connection, a historical connection that goes back 400 years. And partition was this hugely cataclysmic event that happened on the Indian subcontinent, so much so that we feel the reverberations, not only within families, but on the politics of the of the Indian subcontinent today. And so, you know, it, 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 it is important that that we understand why that event happened. But it's also just one thing that we need to understand in our wider understanding of of empire. And, you know, there is this institutional silence around empire and partition. And you talked about some of those numbers, but it's it's probably worth just looking at those figures. When India, British India, was split into two, into Hindu majority, India and Muslim majority, Pakistan, the leaders at the time, Indian Pakistani leaders and British authorities, they never imagined that people would move in in the opposite direction. But that is what happened. And it is estimated around 10 to 12 million people moved at the time of partition. And it is hard to believe, but it is the largest migration that the world has ever seen outside war and famine. And so you had Hindus and Sikhs moving to India and Muslims moving to Pakistan. And what you've got to remember is they weren't just leaving, you know, some people left and they didn't want to leave, but it was too dangerous for them to leave. But what they were leaving was a history, a history of a family's um experience on a, on that land for generations. You know, if you are from the Punjab, you had a common language, a common culture, common tradition. These were communities that lived side by side. And so people were then moving to a new country, sometimes having to learn a new language. And they didn't always feel at home. And they were refugees. And that feeling of being a refugee has never left them. And so many of, of those people whose lives were so disrupted by partition, 
that original wrench had already happened. They'd already left Pakistan or India for a new country. And so when the opportunity arose in 1948 with the British Nationality Act, when Britain looked to its former colonies and asked the people to come to Britain and help rebuild the country after the Second World War, it was people from those families that had been so deeply affected by partition that came to Britain. But they came to Britain with those stories of loss and trauma, and they kept them to themselves. And they didn't really talk about it for so many decades. And and Kavita, that includes your family. And I think the thing that struck me so much reading the book was your own personal story, your father's journey from Lahore to the UK. That's right. I mean, I suppose uh, it's not uncommon with people who study partition. It is very personal to them. And as I said at the start, I he had this story and he would talk about everything. He would talk about growing up in Lahore. He would talk about, you know, being a, a young man in, in India, in the Punjab, and then moving to Delhi, and then being at university there, and then working as a representative for Pfizer in northern India, and then coming to Britain and what Britain was like in 1959 when he arrived. But that bit about partition, he would skate over. And he would say, why do you want to talk about that? And so I would ask him very gently, but it became a very taboo subject. I knew that it was not something. Why do you think that was? I think Why it did was, he try and brush that off? I think it was a number of things. He said he didn't want it to affect our view of other people. And he wanted us to grow up and not really know about bad stuff. And I have learned that he didn't talk to people very close in his family about what he witnessed either. And so I think it was just too much. And so he he didn't talk about it. But like a lot of people, when he came here in 1959, you didn't have time to look back on the past and and ruminate. You had to make a life here. And sometimes it was a hostile environment. You 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 didn't, you know, you couldn't think about the past. You were just trying to to make a life here for yourself and, and your children. And also remember then your children are born here. They don't know much about life back home. They don't ask and they're not taught in schools about their history. They're not learning it at home either. And so, you know, I think of myself and I I'm British. I was born here. My dad's family, my mum's family are from India. But I'm also from Pakistan. I have a very deep and visceral connection to Lahore. And he felt that too. And that's the thing. My history is much more complicated than than maybe I first thought or other people would, would, would lead us all to believe. It's much more, much more connected. So tell us a little bit about your father's story. So my dad lived in Lahore Cantonment, which was an area in Lahore, and his father worked on the railways. He was living predominantly amongst Muslims, but they he, they had a very happy, you know, as as people describe at that time, everybody got on. There there were great friendships. He, you know, his good friends at school were Muslim. But when partition became a reality from March 
1947, he said things changed very quickly and it soon became quite unsafe, he felt, as, as a Hindu living in a, in a Muslim area. And there were big processions happening outside the house. And I know that he talked a lot about the Muslim neighbours protecting his family uh, until the point came where they said, we can't carry on protecting your family here. You need to go to a safe Hindu area. And so he and his family went to friends of theirs who lived in a, in a Hindu district. But they were very worried about his sister who was 15. And at that time, women of the other religion were being targeted, uh, abducted, raped, sometimes forced into marriage. And they were worried about her. And so in in around June, he thinks, they they the family, apart from his father, moved to the maternal grandparents' house in a place called Moga in the Punjab. And to cut a long story short, his father eventually joined them. But on the 17th of August, when the Radcliffe line was announced, word got round that Moga was part of India and they were hugely relieved. They'd all packed to go, but they didn't have to. And he then witnessed the brutal murders of Muslims in near to where his grandparents lived, beheadings, babies being killed, mothers being killed. And it really deeply affected him. Obviously, he was 12 and he took to sleeping in his in his father's bed. And I think that never really left him. I think those images, what he saw, because when he finally described it to me, it was as if he was that 12-year-old boy. And that's the thing, is that even if you don't speak of things that you have seen, you still carry it around in your head. And what is interesting is I could feel it all my life. I didn't know what it was, but I could feel it. And somehow that trauma does, you know, it goes down through the generations. But he did finally tell me his story and actually opened up very a little bit more and more because once he saw with the 70th anniversary this this kind of finally a public space for people to talk about these experiences he he felt that he could too and he and he and he wanted to share it actually and you also talk about his journey to the UK and as you said at the beginning of this conversation just how important the connection to the UK is i was just struck by a passage in the book where you talk about your father's last request at his funeral where he insisted that other religions as well as hinduism which was the religion that he practiced were reflected and you talked about all the different people who attended his funeral as well i wonder if you could just tell us more about that because i felt it was one of the most moving um, parts of the book for me well it was interesting because my father when he was 12 was recruited by the rss a hindu nationalist party but he quickly left because i think he realized he was being brainwashed by them and and so he made i suppose a political journey from from nationalism, he, you know, he would take part in, in demonstrations calling for, you know, he would shouting Pakistan Zindabad down with Pakistan. But when he saw a friend of his, a Muslim fruit seller who was very brutally murdered, he quickly realized that this was not the right path. And I think as part of his story of why he didn't want to tell us, he didn't want it to affect the way that we viewed other religions, but he was he was very broad minded when he came to Britain. His first boss was a Methodist and took him to a number of, you know, Methodist um, church services. And, and he, 
you know, he, he, you know, he had a lot of friends who were of many religions and, and his, literally his, his dying wish to us was that his, in his funeral, that other religions were reflected. It really mattered to him that that was the case. And so a Sikh friend of his read the Mool Mantra, a, a, a Muslim friend of his who he'd studied his PhD with read the Muslim Prayer of Death. My father-in-law, who is who is Jewish, read the Kaddish. And so my sister-in-law read a beautiful Methodist. But so so other other religions were reflected. And I think that, you know, partition was about religion. He saw the poison that was brought about by it. He saw you know, women and children being killed in the name of religion. And I think his reaction and everyone's reaction is different was to shun that. He, you know, he was very mm-hmm. proudly Hindu, but not to the exclusion of not not respecting other religions. The narrative about partition is often about division, but actually what I took away from your book was actually just about how much unity uh, also came out of that, whether it's the story that you've just told me about your father embracing all faiths, whether it's about people who left the subcontinent, but also embraced their new home in the UK, which is, of course, what your father did. That felt like it was a theme throughout the book with many of the stories. Well, I, I think if you listen to the partition generation, and we in Britain are only really hearing their stories 70 years on, and they are so elderly now, but the thing that was the revelation to me and, and what I hadn't expected when I embarked upon this is their view of of life in pre-independence India was very nuanced. You know, that of course, there were stories of horror and violence, but what they also wanted to tell us was another side of history that is often forgotten and is particularly forgotten in the narratives that India and Pakistan tell their people about the origins of of nationhood. And it's that people did largely get on. And it's important to say that, you know, there was no intermarriage. You know, there were local cases of intercommunal violence, but people did get on. And ties to your land could be as important as ties to your religion. And so the stories that people want to tell you, other than the stories of horror, are ones of friendship, of love, of intimacy. And that is what they wanted recorded 70 years on. And when they talk, they don't talk about partition or division or borders. They talk of a very different time. And so, you know, 70 years on what they say is, I I want to, you know, find my, my childhood friend that I couldn't speak to, I couldn't say goodbye to because people left in such a hurry. Or, you know, somebody who says, my, my mother is still buried in, in India's earth. I want, to go, I want to go back there. Or someone who left Lahore in 1947, who came to India and then came to, 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 to Britain saying, I want my ashes scattered in Lahore, even though she's never been back in over 70 years, because that's where she felt most at home. And all of these stories tell you something that the kind of very black and white narrative of partition in the, in the depiction of that is something is sometimes forgotten and the power of oral testimony is that they sometimes challenge these national narratives and that's why you know that's why it's so important and it is so 
touching to hear people's stories of of going back to visit their ancestral home or their childhood home and how they're greeted. And they're greeted very, very warmly and affectionately. And the thing that really kind of took me back was that even in 70 years, how people have very clear memories of that time, but how they, you know, if you've lost everything, you know, you you leave in a hurry, you don't often have time to, to take things with you. What they wanted was a physical reminder of that time. So, you know, one man took a brick from his original childhood home when he when he visited his childhood home in Pakistan. He took it with the permission of the owners and it lives in his in his Edinburgh sitting room, in his living room, in the, in a, in a coffee table, in, in a glass kind of cabinet. And, you know, he talks about it with such reverence, like it's his ancestral home. That's all he has. But that brick tells him, you know, I am part of Pakistan too. I belonged there. And that's, that's the thing is that they, that generation still feel a very visceral connection to the land that they left behind, even if it's a place that they haven't been back to in 70 years. So you ask them, where are you from? They'll say, well, I'm British. I've I've lived here for so many decades, the majority of my life. My children are here, my grandchildren are here. But, but I'm also from, you know, the place I moved to, but I'm also from the place that I was born. And so that's how they that's how they see the land that they left. And how could they not? Because that's the land where they were born, where their their parents were born, their grandparents were born. And so that is the thing that was really surprising to me. And it's really touching, you know, across, across Britain, there are people who have stones or soil or a tile from their, from their childhood home. And they keep it in their home because that's, that's all they have. But it's evidence that they they lived. And that's the thing about partition. I suppose it's the thing about being a refugee or being in exile. It never leaves you. Even if you're not living on that land anymore, it's still part of you. And I feel that too. I'm the second generation. I I I feel that Lahore is part of me and it's very interesting. When we approached people, we never went directly to them. That wouldn't have been appropriate. We we put did call outs on Indian language radio, on BBC Asian Network, you know, we went through faith centres. And it was the third generation that got in contact with us. And, you know, it was the third generation that, that had that curiosity to to know about their heritage. And that that makes me happy that, you know, what that the nuance that that first generation felt about their land, about, you know, a place that, you know, pre-existed before India and Pakistan, the third generation still want to know that and they, they want to understand the complexity of it. OK, we're going to take a quick break now, Kavita, but then we're going to look at some of the other stories that you uncovered in your book. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, 
financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful, so it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash intelligence. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back after the break. I'm Regini Vaidyanathan, and you're listening to this Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm with Kavita Puri, the author of Partition Voices, Untold British Stories. Now, before the break, Kavita, we were talking about your father's story and how your father took years to open up and share his tale of partition. This book is brilliant because it contains so many other stories of that time. Uh, And also it includes white British people who lived through partition as well. Tell us about some of the stories that really stayed with you when you were gathering this book. Goodness, that's such a hard question because every story is kind of etched on my heart, really. I will remember all of them. And I remember not only what they said, but the way they said it. And, you know, you've got to remember often they were saying the words out loud for the very, very first time. And, it, you know, it's hard to whittle it down. But I suppose I, I remember a man called Gerbach Garcher, perhaps because his story was so awful, but the way he told it with he was such a peaceful man. And when I first met him and we sat in his garden and I was eating ginger cake that his wife had made for us, it was a beautiful spring day. And he told me this story of absolute horror. He became the mayor of Lewisham. And it was a story he hadn't really told because he said he realized that it doesn't take very long to make humans turn into beasts and it was such an awful story he 
he didn't want really to talk about it from to, to his children. And he, he was born a Sikh and he described himself as an agnostic Sikh. I suppose like my dad, you know, he saw what religion could do. And he told a very happy story of growing up in the Punjab in a mixed village in a place called Dandari Kurd. And he, he actually wrote a poem about how carefree and joyful his 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 childhood was. And he remembers the day of independence and ladoos, which are Indian sweets, were given out. And he didn't really understand what independence was. He had never even seen a British person. He thought that Nehru was the, was the new king of India. And on the 17th of August, when the partition line was announced, everyone in his village sat around the one wireless in the village to hear whether his village was in India or Pakistan. And it was decided that his village was in India. So he knew as a Sikh, he was safe. But they didn't think anything would change. But what happened was slowly, the Muslims in in his village started moving out. And I, I just want to give you a sense of how close relations were in that village. So he had a Sikh aunt. And when she died, she had a very young baby. And her Muslim best friend suckled that baby. And, you know, to me, that nothing could be more intimate in a way than a Muslim woman breastfeeding a Sikh woman's baby who had just died. What could be closer? And so that is how intimate relationships were in that village. And what soon happened was the Sikh gangs, as he told it, started coming around and quite brutally murdering people in the village. His school teacher was killed in quite awful circumstances and buried in a in a shallow grave. And and he watched people leave. Now they all hoped that they would come back, but once the refugees started coming in, he realized when he heard the stories that there was not there was not going to be this this reconciliation. But the story that remains in my mind that he told me is a horrible story but it's also as with so many partition stories a a compassionate story so at the end of one of his fields of groundnut that his family owned were train tracks and it was the train tracks going from Delhi to Lahore and he would see trains passing and one day he saw a train ghost trains as he described them filled with corpses and he was very alarmed by this And then a couple of weeks later, he saw the same thing, dead bodies just kind of hanging out of of the train. And then he saw movement and he saw life and he saw a woman get out of the train or, or kind of fall out of the train with two young children. And she was very, very, very distressed. And he went up and a a crowd of women had gathered around her and it transpired that she was a Muslim woman. They were, remember, in a Sikh village with her two children and she was very traumatised. And the women took her to the barn because they felt that the Sikh gangs that were coming wouldn't look for for Muslims there. And they asked her what could they give her? Did Did she want clothing? No, she wanted only milk for her children. And so he says he saw how religion was irrelevant, that how 
religion transcended, uh, compassion transcended everything for these women and they protected her for a couple of days and then they spoke to the police and she was safely, with her children, moved to a transit camp where she could go and have safe passage to, to Pakistan. He doesn't know what happened to that woman. But to me, that in many ways sums up so, so many of these stories of absolute horror but also also goodness too that people did transcend hatred to help the other and friends did help you know friends save the lives or neighbors save the lives of the other just as at the same time as as unspeakable things were happening so many other stories another one that sort of stuck with me was the story of Bashir Man it's just like the other story that you talked about he ended up devoting his life to public service in the UK tell us about his story and what stuck you stuck with you on that Bashir is a very interesting character he was a Muslim in in from a Punjabi village and he was always a supporter of Gandhi. But once he went to university, he heard about the Muslim League. And the Muslim League were campaigning for an in, uh, Pakistan to protect the interests of the Muslim minority in India. It's worth remembering that there were 100 million Muslims, a quarter of the population of, of, of British India. And they felt that they could only look after their, safeguard their rights in an independent country. So he campaigned for for Pakistan. And he was very happy on the day of of when independence was declared for Pakistan. But he never thought that Sikhs and Hindus would leave his village. They'd been there for so many generations. And he was very traumatized when a very close and deep, a dear friend of his, a Sikh young man called Jagwan, was killed by a Muslim mob. And he then saw all the Sikh and Hindu families leave and he saw how looters came and tried to take all their belongings and he he, he very much tried to, to protect all their all their things because he knew that the refugees were going to come and that they would need to have a home with beds and sheets with utensils to cook when when they arrived. But there is a very interesting point in his testimony where he says that he was going to visit um, a Lahore railway station to pick up some family members. And he saw one of these awful ghost trains arrived full of Muslim people who had been butchered. And he went back to his village saying, I'm going to kill all the Hindus living there. He says it was tit for tat. And it shows how somebody like him could be turned. And then he arrived in his village and, and he saw his Hindu friends and of course he couldn't do it. But that had really, that feeling had really stayed in his, in his, in his head. And very quickly he became disillusioned with Pakistan and what it, the country it had become. And in 1950, he came to Glasgow and he started life as so many South Asians did as a peddler, which means going door to door selling kind of knickknacks. And he would rise to great prominence in Scotland. Ended up being honoured by the, the palace. He got a CBE, is that right? He did. Right? He, got a, he got a CBE. And I suppose the funny thing about it is he's so proud of his CBE, um, commander of the British Empire. And yet he 
was very vocal against the empire. He wanted the end of empire. And he never saw a contradiction in that. You know, he, he loved Glasgow and he would go back to his village every year. But after a couple of weeks away, he really missed Glasgow. He missed his family. He missed his friends. He missed the weather. And he, you know, he spent such a huge part of his life. He died last year and was honoured by Nicholas Sturgeon. So, you know, I suppose it, his trajectory, it is quite an exceptional one, but the journey is not. It's a journey that, that many, many South Asians of that time who'd witnessed partition took. There are so many stories that we can't go through all of them, but I do just want to touch on one more, because as well as talking to South Asians, you also talk to white British people who were living in South Asia uh, and in the region at the time. Uh, And I thought it was really interesting that you got those testimonies, people like Ken, people like Pamela, who actually witnessed quite a lot. Um, Tell us Pamela's story. Well, it was really important for me to include British stories. Because I, it, it, these are British untold stories, and the British experience was very different from the, the ones experienced by South Asians. But I did want to show the connections between the histories of the subcontinent and Britain, and so it was important for me to include that because people like Pamela or, or Ken grew up with their ayahs speaking to them in Urdu or Hindi. They still speak broken Urdu or Hindi, and they feel that India is part of, of who they were. So Pamela's family had, had been in India for many, many generations. And she was born in Calcutta and has extraordinary testimony of seeing, you know, witnessing the Bengal famine in 1943. She was sent to boarding school in England for, for a number of years. And she had a very, very privileged existence and, you know, the life of the Brits and the life of Indians were very separate. You know, she really only conversed with Indians, with her servants. But that was very normal for, for that time. And she would describe, you know, in the early 19, 1940s of walking the streets and people parting for her. And, you know, they had a, a good life. They had about eight servants and you know, they were in the clubs all the time, you know, even at the height of the Bengal famine, they were still going to their club every day. She would say it was awful, but there was nothing much that they they could do. But then there was an incident where she was riding on her rally bike, as she often did. And she was pushed off her bike quite strongly, and told to quit India. And this was around the time in 1946, where there were huge protests taking place. And so she was sent back to Britain. But but I suppose she ended up marrying a, a, an officer from the British Indian Army. So of course, her, her relationship with, with India is different, but she feels a very, you know, a very deep connection to the country. And what I found is, with these stories, it wasn't only British South Asians that began to open up about their experiences, but friends of mine, colleagues of mine who had never told me that their parents were born in India or their grandparents were. So many families in this country have a connection with India. And I, I feel that they had finally a permission to talk about that time too. And, and that's really only, only a good thing. 
Yeah, I'm just looking at the photos of Pamela. You've got one of her actually on her bicycle that you mentioned as well in the book, um, as well as one more recent picture. Let's just move on a little bit. I mean, this history is so important. And as you've talked about already, Kavita, it's stories that we would probably never otherwise have heard. People who didn't want to speak up about the past, didn't feel that they could, and finally shared their stories with you at the 70th anniversary you know, I grew up in the UK, didn't know half of what was in this book. And at school, I was not really taught anything about partition, despite the connection it has with, of course, with, of course, the UK. In fact, watching Gandhi was probably one of the first times I really got a sense of what had happened, because my parents didn't really tell me too much either. So, I mean, how important do you think this book is in in terms of, sort of civic education, not just here in the UK, but also in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh? I think that I very much, when I wrote this book, had in mind how this book would be seen at the 75th anniversary and the 80th anniversary. And also when we mark the anniversaries when that generation is no longer with us. And out of respect, really, for that generation and what they live through, I I wanted this book written and my hope was always that it would be in every school because it is so imbued in the in the history of our of our country but it's not only was it not spoken of within families it was not spoken of you know within the education system or really institutionally and i think that as we as a country are soul searching about our past especially in this very current moment I think that partition or the study of empire, how it was that the Britain, British came to be in, in India, and understanding that is absolutely critical for South Asians. We don't always know our own history, but also for for wider the wider British public. It, it's important that that they understand why South Asians are here in this country. Um, and especially when you hear narratives today talking about immigration, you know, we have had, by the way, a presence here for over 400 years, but mass migration really began in the early 50s after the 1948 Nationality Act. But, you know, it, it, it always surprises me that we we don't, know our history but it is inevitable you know if we have millions of people in this country of south asian heritage there will be a time where we have to understand why we're here and what our history is because the history of empire is the reason that we are here today and if you look at india and pakistan where again there has been an institutional silence and oral history really only took off in the late 80s there so it happened earlier than here but it's it's again taught in quite a kind of not in a particularly in-depth way and again it is politicized uh, i suppose a book like mine what it does is it shows a huge diversity i have in it you know hindu sikh muslim stories parsi stories uh, British stories. And I think to get the diversity of stories, certainly either in India or Pakistan is quite hard. And I think history is used on the Indian subcontinent in a very particular way, you know, through a very nationalistic 
lens. And certainly now, when things are so bad between the two countries, I suppose the partition testimony shows that it wasn't always like that. And actually, within living memory, there are people on the Indian subcontinent who who understand a very different version of history. And actually, that that version of history is really important to understand. And again, on the Indian subcontinent, it is that third generation that are trying to understand and are very eager to understand that history. And I also think the South Asians here in Britain, you know, they're tied to this land, maybe just one or two generations. That's not very much. It's quite fragile. And with all the rhetoric that has been around immigration, migration, there is a huge thirst to to look at South Asian history and understand it. And, and their history really matters. And I think you know, the, the British South Asian community is quite a complicated community. It it can be quite divided. And I think that for them, this shows, again, that there is more in common than than, than divides them. You know, when, when that ni- generation came in the 1950s and 60s, funnily enough, they actually had to work together, Sikhs, Hindus, Muslims. You know, they had left an Indian subcontinent that was torn apart by religion. But here in Britain... They had to work together to to fight against racism, you know, to fight for better pay. And they worked largely together pretty well until the late 70s, early 80s. But then, for varying reasons, the groups became much more fragmented. And actually, there isn't always a lot of mixing between groups. And I think it's important to to remember that our histories within the community are are really very much tied together. Indeed. I mean, at the moment, around this conversation about how we look at history and we look at the past, there is a movement in the UK now to actually make sure that partition is part of the UK curriculum and that every child in in, in Britain learns about partition in detail. What do you think about that? So South Asian Heritage Month is a, a group of uh, religious faiths and educational leaders who are trying to make partition part of the curriculum. I think it's incredibly important. You know, partition was such a cataclysmic event uh, and remains to be, not only in the politics, but in the makeup of families within Britain today, but it explains so much about the geopolitics as well. And so, you know, I, I think it is absolutely crucial, but it's one part of empire that needs to be studied. I think that a broader look at empire is is really important too and I think if you look at the the generation that I spoke to we talk about empire a lot that generation you know are still among us and they are the vestiges of empire they were born under British rule they were subjects of Britain they're now British citizens we need to speak to them we need to speak to them of that time we need to ask them what it was like to grow up in british india we need to talk about you know the independence movement it, it, you know we should we should use them as a resource to start that conversation and also they have a very nuanced take of of what they feel about empire and and the british but the story of partition is also important because it's a bigger story it's a story of what it means to be a refugee. It's a story of exile and how that sense of exile still remains with you. It tells you about how 
political decisions taken in great haste still live with people 70 years on. But it also tells us how people who had lived together side by side, largely happily, can be whipped up in a frenzy to commit violence or sexual violence against people of the other religion. And how it's not, you know, it's not, there is a, there is a very fine line between civilization and, and absolute anarchy and chaos and for unspeakable things to happen. And we have to learn from that. And so partition is, I suppose, like studying the Holocaust is, is, is a really important way for school children to understand that and talk about it. And just one more thing before we wrap this podcast up, um, Kavita, is going back to you. I mean, this was a very personal journey for you, given that in many ways it began by finding out what happened to your father. How, how has it changed you now, knowing about your family's past? Um, I feel like so many of the second and third generation who heard these stories I feel changed forever by my dad's story, but also by all these stories that I've heard, because I feel that I have peered over into the horrors that man can do to one another and how quickly that 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 can happen. But I also see the glimmer of hope, hope that there there were always good people who you know, had a had an arm outstretched to help the other. But hope too that the generation that lived through it, after all these years, after 70 years, what they want remembered was not just the violence and the horror, but was that time when a Hindu could have a friend who was a Muslim. And and I suppose that is what I am left with, you know, it, it, it was shattering in so many ways to hear the story, but ultimately, I am I am left with hope, which is, uh, you know, you, you have to you have to take what you can with these stories, but that that this is what they want their legacy to be is hopeful. It's a perfect way to end the podcast and this discussion. It was fascinating to hear about how you wrote the book and, of course, hear about some of the people that you met. But, of course, for listeners who want to know more about the book, there are details on the podcast description. It's a a fascinating read filled with really engaging personal accounts, which I think is always the best way to get into history. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, Kavita, on this podcast with Intelligence Squared.